0: Well, they say that last words are important. I suspect I have lived that truth out. Just over a year ago, I set into a final series of messages with a church I was serving, knowing that it was going to be the last things they would hear from me, so I wanted them to hear some really important things. In this book, actually a publication by William Brahms, we find some of the last words of notable people or at least allegedly so and so he put them there and I'll count them as such. Harriet Tubman, most of us know her as the ex-slave and the abolitionist, died in 1913 after a very difficult life and a life full of activism. She gathered her family around her deathbed and in the final few moments of her life they sang together. And according to Brahms, the last words of Harriet Tubman were the songs as they sang Swing Low sweet chariot, not a bad last word for someone who knows Christ. Buddy Rich, on the other hand, took a little more humorous approach. Buddy Rich, the famous jazz drummer and uh, famous for his musicianship. Um, It wasn't actually his very last words, but maybe some of his last public words, according to Brahms, was preparing for surgery. He had some brain issues that required surgery. It had a history of heart trouble. And so as the nurse was prepping him for surgery, she looked to him and she asked this question, is there anything you cannot take? And his answer was, yeah, country music. <laughs> Maybe a little less humorous, the words of Joan Crawford. As she lay dying, her housekeeper was off in the other part of the same room, but just a little bit removed from her. And That housekeeper was praying for Joan Crawford in her last moments. Understanding that, Joan Crawford yelled across the room at her, her, don't you dare ask God to help me. Wilson Meisner. Most of us don't really know the name. He was an American playwright, but... Meisner is most famous for the, well, I don't know about most famous as far as what he said, will recognize him by this phrase or statement that he made: be nice to the people on your way up because you're probably going to pass them on your way down. That was him. But his final words, I think, ring something true for us. As he was dying on his deathbed, His priest walked into the room and said to him, I'm sure that you're ready to talk to me. To which Meisner replied, why should I talk to you? I've just been speaking with your boss. (laughs) It's a fascinating thing, really, to study the last words of people, partially because the last words that people utter as they go into death is often very revealing about what they're thinking and about how they live their life and how How they structured their life. We come to the last words of the preacher this morning. I know that many of you wondered if we would ever get to the end of this series in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to invite you to turn there with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But the preacher, the one that we've been following, we've been eavesdropping in on his collection of sayings and reflections on his own life, As he has been in that lifelong pursuit of meaning and fulfillment in life, he finally now comes to the end of the road. And at the end of the road we find this, well, it's actually a debate among scholars in our day. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12, we'll read in just a few moments, but we we find a different tone. Because at the end of the chase for the preacher, there there is this little section, verses 9-12, through 11 or 12 there where, where it sounds like it's not the preacher talking anymore at all. And so some, some scholars would say that uh, actually what we have is the voice of a narrator, that somebody else came in at the end of the writing of the book and inserted some things to try to bring balance to it. I, I think that's a little bit crazy personally. But uh, other scholars believe, no, this is the preacher talking, and he comes to the end of it, and he tries to wrap up all the stuff that he said. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter which of those two options we want to take, because at the end of the day, what we find is truth here. Whoever's responsible for saying it, we should listen to it. So I begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they're given by one shepherd. Let me stop and, and explain what a goad is. Uh, I lived in East Texas before I came here, and I had some friends out there who loved to go frog gigging. And I don't know that we do that in West Texas, because there's not enough water for frogs to survive, I don't think. But uh, some of these friends of mine would go out along creek banks and they, uh, buy any body of water, really, where frogs might uh, kind of hang out. And so they had this long stick, think of a walking staff. And at the end of it, they would put a few nails in there. And so as they would walk along the creek bank and they would come across a frog, they would gig the frog and it would make for a delicious, an allegedly delicious supper for them. That's something of the picture of a goad that he refers to here. A goad, as he refers to it here, comes out of that economy where there were shepherds and sheep. And sheep being rather um, stubborn. Jesus does call his church sheep, you know. Uh, The sheep being a little bit stubborn sometimes needed a little motivation to keep moving from one feeding place to another. And so the shepherd would have a goad, a stick with a nail or something like that in the end of it, and just a little shot to the the, uh, sheep would move him right on down the road. That's the picture here. And, And the picture that he's painting for us verbally is that the preacher, as he has gathered this body of wisdom... Provides for us something of a motivation in life to keep us moving down the path of life, to keep us moving down the right path in life, to be more specific. So I go back to verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, this is a verse, by the way, I wish I had memorized when I was in high school. My son. Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. What's he saying with this? And especially as we come to his last words, what is it that the, the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is trying to get across to us? Those of us who have been eavesdropping on his own chase in this final entry in his travel journal. What is he saying to us? What are his last words? Verse 13, the end of the matter, that's a statement. It reads almost like a subtitle, the end of the matter. In other words, pay attention because I'm going to summarize now all of the chase and all of the pursuit that I have been talking about, all those things that have led me to the finer parts of life, to, those, to the partying aspect of life, to the stacking up wealth Part of life to the work ethic part of life, all of those things that I've tried to pull together to find happiness and fulfillment. Now I come down to this conclusion the end of the matter, he says, all has been heard. And here's his conclusion fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This consistent theme fear. God, this theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, especially we find it in the wisdom literature, fear God. At the end of it all, a two-word statement that provides the proper focus for us in our own chase for meaning and fulfillment in life. Fear God. But what does that mean? Let's spend a little time unpacking that little word, fear. You know, there is an element of this historically, and we work our way through church history, American church history to be sure. There was that time, that era of preaching that is known as the time of fire and brimstone preaching. Every once in a while, I have people come up to me and say, you need to give us one of those fire and brimstone kind of sermons. Okay, listen up. This this is not the stuff that people like to hear. This this fear, this application of the word fear has, has an element of that in what the preacher is saying here. I don't think it's its primary purpose, as we'll get to that in just a few moments, but it is there. And so let's spend a little time as we talk about what it means when we say fear God, because one aspect of fear has the connotation of being afraid, be afraid, be very afraid. Let me take you in that time of American preaching where that was the kind of preaching that made the headlines. As a matter of fact, it made literature books even, because one of the most famous fire and brimstone preachers of American history is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Most of us know of Jonathan Edwards because of our literature classes in school. Because one of the most famous American pieces of literature is a sermon that was preached by Jonathan Edwards up in the northeast part of the United States, and it was entitled this, Sinners in the Hands of a—what kind of God? Angry God. This is the picture that some people have of God that causes them to shrink back in fear. Let me just read a few lines of that sermon. Try to put yourself into the congregation as this wiry old preacher stands up and shakes his bony little finger as he says these words, and I quote, so that thus it is the natural, or that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the execution of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping. Be afraid. Be very afraid of that God. Now, you need to understand, I'm not totally disagreeing with what Jonathan Edwards was preaching, but I don't think that's everything that the preacher is saying in these last few verses. But before we move to what I think is really his primary point, let's not lose this part. By the way, one of the reasons I say that this part of what he's saying here is verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment. There is that aspect where we need to understand and we need to embrace the reality that God is holy. And God does not just wink at sin as if it's no big deal. There is a part of us that needs to recapture something of that healthy fear of God. I say recapture because I'm not so sure that in our society today that there is this healthy fear of God. As a matter of fact, our society at large seems to think that God is not really someone to be afraid of. There's no element of fear in their perception of him, largely because the perception of him is very much a self-made kind of perception of God. We get to make God out into being anything we want to be, our society might say to us. And so who of us would ever concoct some kind of a story of a God who exacted punishment on those people who displeased him? Our society is rampant with this perception of God that essentially says, now God's You know, if there is a God at all, they might say, He's the one who at the end of it all will just kind of give you a wink and a nudge and go, It's all right, I'll pick it up for you. We know better than that. Let me say that again. We know better than that, don't we? But maybe our tendency is to shrink back inside of our own little society, inside our churches. And then we make God into our own image again when we say, well, you know, at the end of the day, God is more about grace and mercy than he is about justice. Whatever else you want to call that, you're not going to find that to be a biblical statement. God is equally about grace and mercy and justice. He is a holy God. So maybe we've lost a little bit of our sense of being afraid of God. You know, when I was a teenager, I lost a little bit of, a, of the sense of being afraid of my mom and dad. My dad and my mom, for that matter, were really good at reminding me when I started losing touch with that reality. I can remember on one occasion, especially where I was living my life out and my mother had the audacity to step into the middle of my teenage life and try to tell me to do something. Couldn't believe it. And so I let her know in no uncertain terms that that was not her position, to which she reminded me I had plenty of reason to be afraid of her. (laughs) A little more tangible reality of that. Let me push you into the life of one of our children. Our son Colin is a youth minister in South Texas. When he was a young boy, he was, uh, what's a good word? Obstinate, Obstinate's a good word. Colin had a way of just kind of pushing everything else to the side and just focusing in on his life and what he was wanting to do. And, and that wasn't always in line with his mama and what she wanted from him, or his daddy for that matter. But in this particular case, it involves his mom. So I remember more than one occasion, but one specifically when Colin was doing something, I lost track of what it was he was doing, but I did not lose sight or lose track Of the tone of voice that his mama gave to him when she said, Colin Micah, come here. I was glad I wasn't the one in trouble. And so Colin came over. Now, one of the things Teresa did as a matter of course with with our kids, when they were especially off the rails uh, and not really paying attention, she would get a tone of voice, kind of like your mom probably did, a tone of voice, and she would say to them, "Like she said to Colin, Colin Micah, look at me right here. And she would point to her nose, look at me right here. Well, our kids were smart enough to know when that happened, things were about to change. And he snapped to attention, and he was, I, I was watching, and he was just staring at her, and she was pointing right here, you look at me right here, and he, yes, ma'am. And so she began, in no uncertain terms, to teach him the way of the Lord. And somewhere in the process of that, my son said, Mama, you're scaring me. My wife's brilliant in many ways. She came through with one of the most brilliant statements I've ever heard. I intend to scare you. How long has it been since you looked into the face of God in one way or another and were immediately reminded of the fact that he is God and you are not? I don't know that we spend a whole lot of time here Anymore, being afraid of God, and I, I don't know that I want to push it too much. I'm, I'm emphasizing it more than I normally would here because I, I think it's one of those things we easily lose. And we can hear it in our conversations with people. When our tendency is to refer to God as the man upstairs, we may well have lost something about the, the nature of his character. When we say things like, well, you know, somebody up there likes me, let me remind you that that somebody has a name. And it is God Almighty, and he is not like your next-door neighbor. He is Almighty God. He is holy. He is set apart from us, and he is just, and he demands some things from us. At the end of the day, the last words of the preacher include these two small words that carry incredible implications in our lives. Fear God. How do you view God today? Have you gotten chummy with him to the point? This is is that internal church culture, I think, where we get a little chummy with God. we, We mistake intimacy with him for a casual relationship with him. Let's never forget that he is God and we are not. A little healthy fear is a good thing at the end of the day. But let's move to what I think it really is emphasizing here. That fear part is there, the be afraid part is there, but, but more than that, this is a term of reverence and respect. It, it, it carries with it a connotation of living your life in awe of God. In that is grounded our own awareness And I alluded to it just a few moments ago, but let me come back and let's double down on it for a little bit. In this fear God, as he is referring to it here and teaching us about being properly focused in our life chase, grounded in that is our awareness of the power of God and the knowledge of God and the holiness of God. It, it, It is grounded in the reality that says, he is the creator and I am the created. And by definition, that puts me in a situation with him where I cannot just be chummy with God. If I can have any relationship at all with him, it's only because he makes it possible, not because I can Because I can't, and neither can you. And so that puts us into this this relationship orientation where he is God, and we know that, But let me just pause a little bit with you and let me take you as far as I can into that to give you a little bit of a nudge into your lifestyle over the coming week. Let me just give you a little bit of a suggestion for homework here. Spend a little time this week, maybe maybe just this simple prayer. God, show me through nature something of who you are. That's a simple prayer. But if you will live out the implications of that in your life over the coming week, I assure you that this this being grounded in reverence for God will ramp up significantly in your life. For instance, last night, Teresa and I were watching television. I was desperately searching online for a sermon that I could preach today. Now, that's not true. (laughs) Notes were already done. We were already there. (laughs) We were relaxing. And in the middle of this television program, I heard something that what, I couldn't really tell. I, I, I didn't know if maybe our neighbors were having a party. Again, uh, our neighbors know how to have parties. Um, and I wasn't really sure what it was. And so I was kind of trying to keep track of what was going on on the television and listening with one ear. And then not too long after that, I heard it again. I thought, that sounded like thunder. And I thought, it didn't rain in El Paso. It can't be thunder. And so I jumped up and I went out and I opened the door. And as I opened the door, boy, I mean, a lightning flash just lit up the neighborhood. And about 15 seconds later, the thunder came rolling through. I grabbed my phone and I went to look online for a radar report. And sure enough, uh, there was this one little cell, thunderstorm cell, that was making its way across. In front of my house, ultimately, it went across the mountain. I don't know what happened to it then, but for about 10 minutes, I just stood outside and I watched the lightning show, listened to the thunder, and enjoyed the three drops of rain that came for us. (laughs) Do you realize in those moments, I, I flashed back to when I had earth science when I was in college. My mind started working through some of the things that happen in our atmosphere in order for us to be able to see a lightning strike like that or for rain to be squeezed out what little moisture is in the air around here somehow got to the point that it was squeezed out so just those handful of drops made their way down and and I was thinking through the the natural process of what happens with thunder and why we hear that and why it's delayed after the lightning strike and I was I was putting all of those things together as I stood there and I was thinking about this message and I thought what an incredible thing that we serve a god we have a relationship with a god who not only designed all of that but had the power to just speak the words and there it was don't ever forget that he is the creator and I am the created and I have no choice but to bow my knee before him in awe and in reverence and respect God will relate with us on a level that prods our fear But he prefers to relate to us on a level where the almighty God, the creator of all that is, who spoke the words and the worlds came into order, reaches down into your life and says, walk with me. Let me be part of your life. I stepped down out of heaven so that you might be able to have that kind of relationship with me. That's the God that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says, these are my last words. At the end of the chase, when the pursuit has run its course and the final entry in the logbook is written, here's what you need to take home with you, fear God. Live in relationship with him that is such that allows you to understand that he is the designer of life. We look for meaning in life and for purpose in life. Go to the source of life. God says, I am he, and I love you. Fear God, he says. That's the proper focus in our chase. And when we get that right, we're ready for the next part of it that says keep his commandments. That's also in verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. Here's one of the places I think we miss it. It comes back to fearing God appropriately, I think. But one of the things that we really are accomplished at doing inside our church circles is that we like to reduce the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the opportunity for a saving relationship with Christ, but also a fellowship-based life where the one who created life says, here, walk with me. Let me show you how to find meaning and fulfillment in life. And instead of that, we opt for, often we opt for, just a moralistic checklist. I'm a Christian, which means that I don't smoke and I don't dip snuff and I don't dance. And I don't date girls who do those things. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if Jesus doesn't just get heartbroken out of our proclivity towards making moral checklists and calling it Christianity rather than doubling down in the opportunity to walk with him every day. So we have ten commandments that we've expanded like the New Testament Pharisees to over 600 and we we, those things make our list and so we don't do certain things and we don't do other things and then we do some things those make our list. Years ago when I was a youth minister, I first came into contact with this concern from parents, and that is why when their children got to be 11th and 12th graders, they started wandering away from church. I was a youth minister dealing with that, and then I was a parent of teenagers, and then I was a pastor supervising youth ministers who had parents who were dealing with that. It's a common thing through the years. We have a lot of really slick answers to that. But here's one that I think we should listen to. When we reduce Christianity to a moral checklist and we push it on our kids and say, if you just do this, then that's the Christian life, our kids sooner or later look at that and go, I, I don't want to do that. There's got to be more than that. And If there's not more than that, I'm just not going to do that. And so they walk away because all they were given sometimes was just a moral checklist that was called Christianity. I don't believe that that's fearing God appropriately if that's what we teach our kids. What he says here is keep keep his commandments. I would suggest to you that when we live in the proper relationship with God, then the keeping his commandments takes care of itself. When I walk with Jesus Christ at the level that I realize what he does for me in everyday life, I don't want to do things that displease him. I don't need to go looking for some other way to fan a little bit of adrenaline into my life because the life that he offers is full of life. So be careful when you come to this point in your own chase that that you don't hear his conclusion and you don't come to your own conclusion that essentially says, well, if I just don't do certain things and do certain things, then I'll have what he's offering. That's not what he says. Fear God. Live in relationship with him. And as you do that, do the things that he says, this is what life looks like. And when it's all said and done, you will be able to say with him, this has been a good chase. Last words can be important; they can reveal something to us. So I'll close this series this way. I Had a lady in our church in South Texas, a family who had a family member who had died before I got there. This lady had been an uh, a, start to say alcoholic. That's not true. She was a hypochondriac. You understand the term? hypochondriac, that means if a new disease gets discovered, she's had it for 40 years. I've had family members like that. They're just always sick. And so they read something online now and they say, oh, I have that. Well, you might probably not, but you know, if you want to. This lady just was always sick. She wanted everybody to know how sick she was all the time. And so when I went to the grave site of another one of their family members to officiate, when the service was over one of the ladies in that family said, come here, I want you to see so-and-so's Tombstone, And so we walked across the cemetery and over there and walked up to it. And I thought, looks, yep, that's a tombstone, sure is. Looks just like every other one out here. She said, no, no, you need to see the other side. We walked around the back. And on the back of that lady who had been a hypochondriac, on the back of her tombstone, it said this. So her last words, I told you I was sick. <laughs> so in all seriousness, Let me ask you, what do you want written on your tombstone? The last word of your life. You realize by the time you get to that point, you don't have much opportunity to influence how other people saw your life. Here's what I want on mine. He walked with Jesus, and he helped us do the same. That's my chase, to walk with Jesus and to help you do the same. What are you chasing? Where's God in your life? How's it going for you? Let's pray. And so, Father, we close where we started. That is, we desperately need to hear the words of life from you in a fresh way. So help us to settle in the, to the relationship that you make available only through Jesus Christ. And those of us gathered here today and those watching on TV, there's countless numbers of us who are chasing all kinds of things in life, finances, fame, power, rest, excitement, relationships. We chase all kinds of stuff. So more than anything else today, Father, we need you to help us to get properly focused so that we might pursue you as you have pursued us and that in the relationship that you make available to us that we would spend the rest of our lives loving Jesus and enjoying the life that only you can give through him. Help us to fear you appropriately. Change lives now in this invitation time is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand if you will. We go to invitation time. Whatever God is doing, dealing with you right now, this is the time to deal with it. If we can help, we'll be down here to pray with you. If you need to make a decision of some kind, join the church, accept Christ as your Savior. Just turn from the chase that you've been in. Now's a great time to do it. You come.